I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as we've been making our way through this chapter, kind of camping out here a bit, we come to verse 25. And I'd like to begin reading there to the end of the chapter. And so let us uh, once again give ears to the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. When the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever, let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth. That you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, ever since the beginning of chapter 7, the Apostle Paul has been addressing various issues that the Corinthians had raised to him in a letter that they had written. And so he begins speaking, first of all, with uh, uh, issues concerning marriage and divorce. 
And then, as we saw last week, he expanded and broadened that concept of uh, marriage and divorce and the, and the broader idea of remaining content in life wherever the Lord called you as he applied that to both Jews and Gentiles as well as slaves and free. One thing that has come very clearly in chapter 7 is as the Apostle Paul addresses issues concerning marriage is he highlights the fact that marriage is a gift from God. It's something he created for mankind for the mutual benefit of husband and wife, and it should not be whatever God has put together, man ought not to put asunder. And so he's spoken very clearly on issues concerning marriage and divorce. But another thing that the Apostle Paul has mentioned and which he focuses on in our passage today is the concept of singleness. The fact that not only marriage being a gift, but also being able to remain single and living a life of celibacy as the Apostle Paul had done, how that too is a gift that God bestows upon particular individuals. This would have been very countercultural in Paul's day, both in, the Jew, in his Jewish context as well as the Greco-Roman context, both of which pushed marriage upon everybody as the norm, as the standard. And yet, as, as Paul mentioned previously in the chapter, he says he thinks that for those who have the gift of remaining single in life, he could see how that might be better. And so for those of you who are single, who have been listening to these sermons about marriage and divorce and thinking, what does that have to do with me? Today is your day. The Apostle Paul now addresses in particular uh, single people who were not married, who had not been married, and yet were considering whether they ought to get married. And so that's what the Apostle Paul in verse 25 says concerning the betrothed. The Greek word here is literally virgins. This refers to people, as I said, who had not been married and yet were contemplating it. And in some cases were already engaged or betrothed to be married. And so they wrote to the Apostle Paul and they're asking him, what should we do? Now, when we talk about betrothal and when the Apostle Paul mentions it in our passage, I think it's helpful to understand the cultural context, how it is that people would get married in the ancient world. It was typical for men to marry in their early to mid-20s. After they had established a career and, and made some money for themselves, they would typically get married between the age of 20 and 25. Women, on the other hand, got married at a much younger age. We're talking early to mid-teens. And marriage was not something that was solely divided between a husband and or decided between husband and wife, but rather it was a family affair. Most marriages were arranged where the two families would agree that, that, that the, the husband and wife would get together. And what, what was called betrothal was a much more binding legal act. Typically today, uh, uh, a young couple... Uh, the, the groom or the, the fiancé will propose, right, give the girl a ring, and, and really they could call that off at any minute. Uh, you know, the, the most significant thing would either be giving the ring back or canceling the caterer uh, to call off an engagement today. But in the ancient world, betrothal, as I said, was a legal act, and it was much more binding. And so it would have been a much bigger deal to either delay the marriage or call it off. And so that's why the Apostle Paul speaks at length about the possibility of delaying or perhaps even calling off a betrothal. 
And so the Apostle Paul mentions, uh, he, he addresses this issue, but he says that he has no command from the Lord. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was here on earth, he taught about many things in his earthly ministry, but he did not address every single topic. And so that's why we have the Apostles. That's why we have men like the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to be able to weigh in on these issues and address uh, this particular issue with regard to those who are considering marriage. And so Paul talks, mentions the fact that he is an apostle. He, by the mercy of God, is trustworthy. In chapter 15, he'll say, by the grace of God, he is what he is. That is, he's been named an apostle. And so he gives his judgment or his official opinion, which is trustworthy. Paul isn't saying here, hey, take it with a grain of salt. You know, this is what I think, but who am I? No, he's saying I'm an apostle. This is my judgment. Jesus didn't speak on it in his earthly ministry, but you should take what I'm going to say with, uh, uh, it should not be taken lightly, but you ought to consider his official opinion. And his opinion is found in verse 26. He says that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, what on earth is this present distress? The Apostle Paul doesn't tell us what this distress is. Presumably, his audience knew what the distress is because they were living in it. Uh, and so what on earth is Paul talking about when he, he, dresses, he t- mentions this present distress? Uh, some commentators have suggested that Paul here, when he's referring to the present distress, he's referring to the events surrounding the end of the world. That is, they suggest that Paul was expecting the imminent return of Christ at any moment. And so it's typically what we think of the end times events. Uh, that Paul was thinking that those things were impending and, in fact, were presently upon them and therefore urged younger couples not to get married. Well, clearly, if that's what the Apostle Paul thought, clearly he was wrong as we are reading this letter some 2,000 years later. Clearly, the end of the world was not upon them at that moment. And while, so I think it's helpful to understand that while the Apostle Paul clearly viewed Christ's return as imminent, he believed that, he, that Christ could return at any moment, he did, this never let him to adopt sort of what we might call an alarmist uh, world flight mentality, that, that he would shun things like marriage or gaining property or getting a job. It's interesting, if you read uh, his letters to the Thessalonians, both First and Second Thessalonians, are books that uh, speak heavily about the coming of Christ. And he's writing to a church that were expecting Christ to return at any moment. In fact, some had suggested that Christ had already returned. And Paul had to clear that up. But it's interesting when you look at that correspondence, how much the Apostle Paul talks about how it's important to, to work hard and to get a job and to live a life uh, uh, that, that would suggest otherwise that Christ isn't going to return anytime soon. So it's as if Paul, the Apostle Paul, says, Jesus can come back at any minute, so get a job and go to work. It reminds me of uh, a quote of Martin Luther that if, when, when asked, what would you do if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow? He said, I would plant a tree. That is, I would go about my life as if Jesus weren't coming back tomorrow, I would live my life in a normal way. And that's what the Apostle Paul always seems to urge. Further, 
it's interesting that the Apostle Paul never views the, com- the second coming of Christ as something that is distressing. He would never call that a, dis- a present distress, but rather it is our blessed hope. And so I think we can rule out the view that the Apostle Paul, in referring to this present distress, is referring to, to what we might call end times events or, uh, or uh, in, uh, events surrounding the second coming of Christ. Others have suggested it's some other tragic event that happened in Corinth. Perhaps it's related to the fact that many were sick and even had fallen asleep due to their, their abuse of the Lord's Supper. Others suggest that perhaps it was a time of intense persecution. We know that Paul himself, when he was in Corinth, had been arrested and brought before the proconsul, and so there was definitely persecution that may have arisen. But one interesting suggestion that we come across is that we know during this time that there were at least three major grain shortages due to famine in Corinth in the late 40s and early 50s. One of these famines took place probably when Paul was living there for 18 months. The New Testament, uh, the, the New Covenant prophet Agabus predicted a worldwide famine in Acts chapter 11. And so perhaps this is what Paul is referring to, a famine, a severe grain shortage that we, knew, we know had come upon Corinth right around this time. And so that would make perfect sense for the Apostle Paul in writing young couples who were thinking about whether they ought to get married and start a family at this time. It would make perfect sense for the Apostle Paul to say, in light of this fact, in light of the fact that you're experiencing perhaps this famine, this severe grain shortage, maybe now is not the time to get married and start a family. Indeed, doing that is never advisable in a time of crisis. And so that's why Paul tells the single people, it's good in my judgment to remain as you are. If, you're, if you don't have a wife, don't seek one right now. And yet, of course, for those who are already married, this present distress should not end their marriage. It's not an excuse to just divorce and get rid of your wife. No, Paul says, if you're married, don't seek to be free. You'll notice here, the Apostle Paul once again uses this imagery of a slave imagery, being bound to your wife or being bound to your husband, not because marriage is restrictive, but because the Apostle Paul took the marriage bonds so seriously. Marriage, indeed, is until uh, death do you part. And so he writes to the young couples who are considering whether they ought to get married, and he says, in view of the present distress, I think it's best for you not to get married at this time. And yet again, he makes clear in verse 28 that this is his advice. This is not a binding judgment. This isn't a command from the Lord. For those who do not possess the gift of singleness... For those, uh, as he says later on, for whom it has to be, he says, go ahead and get married. It's not a sin. Go ahead and get married. You see, Paul is being a realist. He understands that some people cannot, uh, cannot wait or delay or postpone marriage. And so he says, go ahead and do it. If you do that, it's not a sin. And yet, as a considerate pastor... Paul makes clear that he just wants to spare his young readers the struggles that accompany marriage, especially during a time of crisis, such as a famine would bring. He says, I want to spare you those worldly troubles, 
the, the troubles that come, the, literally the, persecu- or the affliction that happens uh, uh, as a result of these things. And so how ought we to view events such as famine? How ought we to view uh, events such as war or uh, natural disasters, things like this? In all of such times of distress, whether it's man-made or uh, what we call acts of God, I think we as believers, each and every time these things happen, we ought to take these as signs and reminders of the fact that we live in a fallen world. The world is not as it was in the beginning, but rather the world has been subject to futility and we live in a fallen age. And so whenever things like earthquakes or famines or war breaks out, we ought not to think it's the end of the world, but it ought to remind us of the end of the world. That is that one day Christ will come and put an end to all of those things and renew the world in such a way that it is a new heaven's and new earth. Jesus teaches us that in Mark chapter 13 when he's talking about another major event that rocked the first century, that is the destruction of Jerusalem, and how that event pointed forward to the day in which he would come in his second coming. And so Jesus says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So anytime these these things of times of distress come upon us in this present fallen age, we shouldn't be alarmist. We shouldn't think it's the end of the world. But it should remind us that one day Christ is coming. They're the beginning of those birth pains in which creation itself groans and eagerly awaits the day when Christ will come and make all things new. And so that's why I think the Apostle Paul can can go from addressing perhaps what it might have been a famine in the first century to then talking about the second coming of Christ or what we typically think of as the end of the world in verse 29 when he says, and this is what I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. Is Paul talking about the end of the world? Is Paul saying that, that, uh, that Christ is going to come back in, in a matter of months or days and that you shouldn't even worry about getting married? No. I think if we knew, if we, if we knew and understand the Greek language, it would make more sense to us. You see, the Greeks actually had two words for time. One word is the word chronos, from which we get the English word chronology. And chronos referred to time like that in a chronological duration. So you might speak of, uh, you know, if you think of a historical timeline and you think of events and, and dates that we can set and plug in and we think of time as duration, that is how the Greeks referred to, that's what the Greeks referred to as chronos. But they had another word uh, that was called kairos. And a kairos referred to a particular period of time, or perhaps what we might understand as a time of opportunity. Not necessarily time as as duration, but a time of opportunity. And that is the word that the Apostle Paul uses here. That's why the ESV translates it as the appointed time. 
So he's not saying that Jesus is going to come back in a matter of days, months, or years. What he's saying is that we live in a special time. We live in a special time that has been uh, constricted. A special time that has been shortened. That has been packed with, with, uh, with significance. You see, ever since the life, death, and resurrection of Christ... The New Testament makes very clear we have been living in the last days. As, uh, as uh, Hebrews mentions that in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. We, we've been living in what Paul in Galatians 4 calls the fullness of time. Or in this very book, in chapter 10, the end of the ages. And so we've been living in the last days for the last 2,000 years because we live after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming has been packed with heavenly significance because the kingdom of God has already begun. It's been inaugurated at his first coming only to be consummated at his second coming. And so we need to think of this time as a time of opportunity that has been packed with significance. I think of, uh, uh, boys and girls, if you've ever been on a big roller coaster. A roller coaster starts by taking you up to the very top, right? And you, and you get on the, the climb and that chain uh, clicks into the, to the roller coaster and you're chick, 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 making your way up and it's very slow. Think of the whole of the Old Testament as that very slow ascent to the very top of the roller coaster. But then with the second coming or the first coming of Christ, that's when you reach the fullness of time. And now it's all downhill. So that even though the rest of the ride, the majority of the ride may be taking place after that first climb, time is faster, as it were. It's filled with, with more greater significance And that's what I think the Apostle Paul's talking about when he refers to the present time that we live in. We live in this time of opportunity where we need to be making the best use of time, not only because the days are evil, but because time is fleeting. Time is fleeting. And so the fact that eternal realities are breaking into this present age because Christ came, we we can now view the rest of our life the everyday matters that we deal with on a daily basis, it puts all of those things in a new perspective. And that's what, that's what Paul begins to unpack when he says, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, the Apostle Paul is not telling us as married people that we can shirk our marital responsibilities. He's not denying what he said earlier in the chapter Or that uh, we should live, those of us who are married, we should live as single people, changing our Facebook status from married to single. That's not what Paul's talking about. As Paul, as will become clear, as as he's sort of waxing eloquent here in this this kind of poetic nature, as what, what, what becomes clear is that he's saying we should not view these things, whether they be marriage, whether it be mourning or rejoicing, whether it be buying or selling, we should not view these ordinary everyday matters as the end-all and be-all of our existence. And so as as important as marriage is, it's not that important. As significant as a husband and wife coming together, being part of God's creation and gift to mankind, 
it does not last forever. As Jesus makes very clear in Matthew chapter 22, that in the resurrection, people are neither married nor given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Can't tell you how many times I've gone to weddings where uh, the, the pastor holds up the ring and he says, this ring is a symbol of eternity. It, it never ends. It goes in circles. It never ends. And so likewise, this marriage is eternal. That is not true. It's a beautiful, sentimental thing. And perhaps the love is eternal, but not the marriage ordinance. That has a termination point, either death or the resurrection when Christ returns. And so as important as marriage is, the Apostle Paul says, it's not that important in light of eternity. Again, here we see a relativizing of earthly matters and ordinance. This is what we saw last week when the Apostle Paul could refer to a slave as somebody who is free. And somebody who is free as Christ's slave. It's relative. The distinction between Jew and Gentile, it doesn't matter in God's eyes from the eternal perspective. Likewise is the case with with our marital status. Verse 30, he talks about mourning and rejoicing, common aspects of everyday life, uh, you know, things that we go through on an everyday uh, basis. Uh, Paul says that it's all relative. Now, it's important to know that Paul is not forbidding these emotions as if he's saying you should never mourn or you should never rejoice. He's not being a stoic here. There were Stoic philosophers in Paul's day who said that, that, that the key to happiness is remaining unaffected from the vicissitudes of life. That you shouldn't let uh, mourning or, or sadness or even rejoicing change your emotions, but you should have an even keel and keep a stiff upper lip. And, and there was sort of this dis, de, detachment from everyday realities. Paul isn't urging that. In Romans 12, he tells us to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. He's not invalidating our emotions, but he just wants us to put them in perspective in view of the heavenly realities of heaven. So although we mourn in this life, we do not mourn as those who have no hope. And although we rejoice in this life, We realize that the pleasures that are afforded us in this life are not worth comparison to the heavenly realities that await us. And then he goes on to address even more issues of everyday life as those who buy, uh, you know, thinking of of the commerce and uh, uh, Corinth being a great commercial uh, city uh, with, with much trade going on. He says, as those who buy... I like how the NIV translated it as those, uh, as if it were not theirs to keep. You know, in this everyday life, we, we value our possessions. We have our, our houses, we have our cars, may even have um, some SUVs in the driveway. We, we, we accumulate possessions. But the Apostle Paul wants us to know that as believers, those things really don't belong to us. They're temporary. If you go and buy a new car, if you go and buy a, a, a new outfit... Buy it with the mindset that it's not yours to keep because it is fleeting in light of eternity. In other words, we ought not to cling to this world nor be engrossed in it. Why? Verse 31, because the present form of this world is passing away. What we see with our eyes, what we handle with with our hands, all of that is going to pass away. 
Think of a, a, a building that is being constructed and a scaffolding that is put around it so that you can't see what's being constructed. You just see the scaffolding. That's basically what we see in this present age. One day that scaffolding is going to be removed and we're going to see the new heavens and new earth in all its glory. And the Apostle Paul wants us to live our lives, our present lives, in light of that eternal reality. He wants us to walk by faith and not by sight. As he tells the Corinthians in the second letter, in 2 Corinthians, as we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That is the hardest thing for us to get over because we are so drawn to what we see with our eyes. But we need to constantly remind ourselves that what we see with our eyes is passing away. And we need to live our lives by faith in light of the heavenly realities which are ours in Christ. And so returning to those who are considering whether they ought to get married, the Apostle Paul in verse 32 says, I just want you to be free from anxieties. I want you to be free from anxieties. This word translated anxiety could also be translated concern. Uh, It's uh, depending on the context. It's either a legitimate concern or an illegitimate concern based upon uh, whether it's concern or anxiety. And yet I think the Apostle Paul unpacks clearly why he prefers a single life. And perhaps even apart from the present distress. Perhaps even if that famine ends and the grain supply comes back and prices go back down, uh, the Apostle Paul wants us to seriously consider how, a sing- how one who lives a single life, who has been given that gift, could bring glory to God uh, even apart from getting married. He explains that a single person is free from what we might call worldly care that naturally comes with having a spouse. And therefore is free to concentrate entirely on service to the Lord and pursuing holiness in life. There were some in the ancient world who spoke like the Apostle Paul here in saying that perhaps it is better to not get married. After all, you get married, it's a lot of work. Husbands got to provide for their wives. Wives got to make sure that they're pleasing their husbands. And there were some philosophers who said maybe it would be better, not for everyone, but for a select few to not get married so that they could devote their entire lives to the pursuit of pleasure in contemplation in philosophy. You see where they're getting at, right? What are they thinking about? Thinking about themselves, right? They're being selfish. They're thinking, I don't want all the the worries and concerns about having a wife. I just want to be able to enjoy myself and read a little bit of philosophy, read some Plato, And uh, enjoy my time. That is not what the Apostle Paul is saying for those who have been given the gift of singleness. Rather, he says that if you are single, you have the opportunity to devote your entire life to pleasing the Lord. You have all the time in the world to think how you could be holy in body through the power of the Spirit. Not devoting yourself to so self-pleasure and, the, and philosophy, speculative philosophy, but rather how you can please the Lord. Whereas those who are married, their interests are divided. 
As a husband, I can't just focus on service to the Lord, but I also have to make sure that I'm providing for my wife. And I I want you to think about how much work this would entail in the ancient world. Just think of how, how, how difficult it would be just to even get water for your house for the day. Right? Or, or to get food, or to uh, have clothing, right? for the husband to be able to work you know, laboriously in whatever trade he has so that he could buy some, some yarn so that his wife can take that and make clothing or uh, food, all of the work. Just think how much of their day would be taken up just making sure that they're providing for each other. Whereas the single person would be freed up in a lot more. I often think, uh, you know, applying this to myself and what I do, I think, you guys probably would have got a much greater deal if you called a single pastor. Think about how much time that a single pastor would have to be able to devote himself, himself to study and you know, have opportunity to, uh, to be ready to you know, serve you as a church. Well, I do the best I can, but I got a family as well. And so that's what the Apostle Paul's getting at. Is you think about how Paul, for him to say, for me to live is Christ. He really meant that. His entire life was, uh, was devoted to pleasing the Lord. And so that's how he's able to unpack the benefit of being single in life so that you could devote yourself entirely to service to the Lord and to your neighbor. And yet he wants to make clear that this is not a command. Paul is not binding their conscience. Verse 35, he's not laying any restraint upon them. Literally, uh, he's saying, I'm not going to put a noose around your neck. This is just my advice. I just want to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And yet, getting back in verse 36, for those who feel like it was improper for them to delay marriage any longer, for those who perhaps were already betrothed and the date was set and they had the caterer and they had the DJ uh, booked, the Apostle Paul says, look, he's a realist again. If, you, if it has to be, if you can't control your passions, then go ahead and do it. It is not sin. And so it's not a question of right and wrong. It's a question of what is good or better. And so for those who were firmly determined, who did have uh, uh, control over their thoughts and passions, who had you know, the agreement, the mutual agreement between the bride and groom, Paul urges that it was better for them to refrain from getting married. And finally, at the end of our passage, Paul briefly mentions, or uh, Paul then takes up another issue, that is the issue of those who were widowed in life. He he had mentioned back in verse 8, widows briefly, when he says he thinks it's good for the unmarried and for widows to remain single even as he is. And now he explicitly addresses the issue of widows in the last two verses of the chapter. Now, typically, we think of widows as those who are elderly, but that's only because of advancements in medical technology and the, the vast increase in age expectancy. In the first century, it was not uncommon for a woman to be widowed multiple times. Life was nasty, brutish, and short. And so if you're getting married, say, at 13 years old, your husband's 25, and he dies at 30 you're a relatively young widow. And so the Apostle Paul wants to address this segment within the church, and he makes very clearly that, first of all, marriage lasts 
until death do you part. He once again speaks of marriage being this lifelong monogamous relationship. A wife is bound to her husband, not because marriage is restrictive, but because those bonds are so tight. But if her husband dies, literally falls asleep, and so here Paul's referring to the death of the believing husband, he says that she is free to marry whomever she wishes, assuming that he too is a believer. That's that's what he means when he says only in the Lord. You see this remarkably free uh, language uh, with regard to this widow. She's completely free to marry whoever she wants. This is actually not really patriarchal at all. The, the, the widowed woman is, is free to marry any believing man that she wishes. But he goes on to say, I think she's happier if she remains as she is. Once again, Paul gives his personal preference for remaining single, assuming one has that gift. As he said back in, uh, in, in, in verse 9 of our chapter, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. If you don't have that gift, then go ahead and get married. And so as he, as he concludes his advice concerning marriage, singleness, and divorce, perhaps with his tongue firmly planted in his cheek, he writes at the end of the, of the chapter, I think I too have the Spirit of God reminding his readers who fancied themselves as spiritual people, the Apostle Paul underlies his authority by reminding them that his words ought not to be taken lightly. Why? Because of the fact that it is the very word of God. The Apostle Paul, too, has the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is inspiring him as he writes these, uh, these words, giving advice to single people in the church. As we conclude our passage today, we see that in in giving advice for those who are considering marriage, Paul reminds us all that the present form of this world is passing away. And while we live in the world, we ultimately are not of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come and make all things new. We're reminded that we ought to live by faith and not by sight and not be not cling too tightly or be engrossed with the things of this world because they are temporary and they are passing away. And so as the uh, Apostle Peter asks, since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? He says in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. May the Lord enable us all to walk by faith and not by sight. May we look, for, look uh, to, not to things on earth, but to things in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you were pleased in the fullness of time to be born of woman and born under the law in order that you might redeem us from the curse of the law and give us life. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, who even now enables us to participate in heavenly realities. And you have made it so that the appointed time has been shortened. Our our present age has been infused with eternal significance, O Lord. And so we pray that you would help us all to live in light of eternity, whether we are married or whether we are single. Lord, we pray that you would help us to go about our daily lives 
loving and serving you as well as our neighbor. And we ask all of this in your name. Amen.